0: So you recall in John Wheeler's vision of quantum cosmology, the entire universe, rather than consisting fundamentally, objectively, absolutely as a purely physical mass energy space-time reality. On the contrary, mass, energy, space, time are derivative. And what's fundamental is information. And so the whole universe is considered as an an information processing system, which doesn't run without an observer participant. Just like your computer doesn't run without an observer participant. It just sits there. It's, It's paperweight. Well, coming back to the theme of microcosm and macrocosm, if that's the case, if that's the case, And right now, they don't really know. It's very hard to run experiments on that when you don't have a clue what consciousness is or what the nature of the observer participant is. And physicists just aren't trained to understand what an observer participant is. And so it was kind of maybe a bit too, how do you say, harsh of me to be so disappointed in Stephen Hawking. I mean, if you expected Einstein to be a brilliant violinist, you'd be be disappointed. He wasn't. If you thought that because he was so brilliant, he'd be a great dad, you'd be disappointed he wasn't. But he was brilliant in what he did, and so, respects to Stephen Hawking, for his brilliant physical insights, and if he didn't have such insights from the nature of the mind, well, who's perfect? (laughs) The answer to that is Buddha, but we won't go there. But if this is true, just imagine this true. It's fun playing with working hypotheses that, you know, through meditation you might actually be able to put to the test of experience. Well, we find microcosm, macrocosm all over the place. In the Buddha Dharma, we've seen it before. So rather than conceiving of a human being as fundamentally, you're a body. Or as, what was his name? Antonio Damasio said, you are a brain carrying a body on your back. So that's one way of viewing human beings, is you're just, you're a chunk of meat, electrified meat, that's kind of, (laughs) and that makes you a human being, you know? So that's one way of viewing a human being, is, you know, you're a system of just matter and energy, and that's the materialistic view, everything else is derivative, but of course that ignores really kind of all of 20th century physics, let alone 21st century, so consider maybe... Perhaps John Wheeler is right. This whole fusion of cosmology of quantum mechanics with the whole cosmos—imagine—is right. In which case, then a human being is not fundamentally matter-energy existing in space-time, but a human being is fundamentally an information system, information-processing system, where information is primary. Which, which, of course, there is no information without an observer-participant. That's you. From that perspective, so many things make sense that absolutely don't make any sense at all, for materialistic paradigm. And one of those is the placebo effect. We didn't. We don't need to go off to the twilight zone with you know precognition and remote viewing and these things that materialists don't believe in anyway. But really, nobody in his right mind can doubt the existence of the placebo effect. I mean, there's so much evidence for it. And yet. From a purely materialistic perspective, it doesn't make any sense. It should not be possible. That things like trust, belief, and it's not just general trust, it's trust that if I go to this fine Norwegian psychotherapist and she gives me some, you know, working with a psychiatrist, she gives me some, some drug that will alter my body and mind, and I, and I know exactly what it's supposed to do, and I believe her. You know, if I believe her. That belief that that sugar tablet will do something very specific in my body triggers, in many cases, it doing exactly what I think it will do. Not just feeling better, but lowering blood temperature, and uh, blood, um, blood pressure, and so many other things. That the placebo effect works in a very, very wide array. And moreover, it's not only the placebo effect. It's the nocebo effect. And the nocebo effect is believing that something will harm you even though in fact, it's a completely innocuous substance, and having a very specific notion, if I take this, I think I'll kind of start breaking out in warts. If I take this, I think my, my hair will fall out. If I take this, you know, I'll get a i don't know fungal infection, and lo and behold, you take it and you get just what you expect. That's called the nocebo effect. placebo means "please me," and nocebo" means don't please me." you know but this makes no sense. If you're just a chunk of matter with electricity in it, however the complex the configuration may be, that very specific physiological effects could take place just because you think them, but bear in mind you're no chemist, you're no physiologist, you're just a, you know, you could be an architect, you could be a plumber, but just bleeding this, that this will bring about specific changes in the body and then in so many cases it does. One old friend of mine used to be head of research and development for one of the major pharmaceutical industries in the whole of the United States, a really big one. I just won't mention the name, but a really big company and so and he had been chair of oh, was it biochemistry at a major university, something like that and He told me, after years of experience in academia and then head of research development for one of the biggest ones, he said about fifty per cent of the benefit you get from pharmaceutical drugs across the board, the whole range, about 50% of the benefit you get from placebo effect. And I said, I, my immediate response was, well, oh, in that case, they should, they should charge half. <laughs> <laughs> we gave you half, you gave half, we'll just cut the difference, you know, what it is, 50-50. <laughs> that didn't happen. It seems fair to me. But really, we've gotten so accustomed to this and then, of course, the pharmaceutical companies are spending billions of dollars here over, over decades to find drugs independently of the placebo effect, because you can't market the placebo effect, whereas you can market drugs. It really doesn't make any sense. It's inexplicable. How believing this specific effect will take place and having no idea how what kind of physiological changes, biochemical changes are necessary Starting from the brain, going to the immune system and so forth and so on, having not a clue of what would be the processes necessary to yield that result for better or worse, but just believing it and lo and behold, it happened. Ah, oh, now that's magic. That's just weird. That shouldn't be. If really we're just bottom line physical matter. A silly little belief, oh this will lower my blood pressure, should just sit there wandering around in your mind, not having a clue how to engage with the chemistry, the meat, the blood, and so forth, in your body. But, if we are fundamentally information processing systems, and you introduce some information in, this will lower your blood pressure, this will help you with your diabetes, this will help you, what have you. You're introducing information, well, you've just gone right to the core. you hit the bullseye. And so that information would, of course, influence your mind, but it would also influence your body because body and mind are both stemming from information. So now the placebo no super effect makes perfectly good sense. Whereas it makes no sense whatsoever. It shouldn't be possible. So that's just for starters. Right. So consider that we're an information processing system. Well, since so many people are liking you to use the metaphor of computers. And this has been going on with respect to the mind for, for decades now. Uh, years, decades ago people were comparing the mind to a switchboard, a, a telephone switchboard system. And before then they were comparing it to hydraulic pumps. And so they're basically, the tendency is to compare the mind to the latest technology. And since, you know, nowadays we have computers, uh, consider your mind is like a laptop. Why not? Well, we find, again, a lot of people speak of spiritual path as not just being linear, certainly not circular, then it's no path, that's msara. Um,
1: <laughs> but something
0: of a spiral, something of a spiral. Many people recall, recall that, that how it's kind of like, oh, this is similar to before, but it's different, and oh, this is similar to before, but it's different. Comes up a lot. Well, let's consider maybe there's a little bit of truth to that. So, I'm remembering my first laptop. With some nostalgia. It was 1985. It was the, I think it was the first laptop that IBM made. It was $2,000. It was not cheap. And it had two little disks, 64K. And you put in the software on one, one and, and the other one would hold all your data, 64K, but don't get a big file because it's 64K and that's it, you know? And then you put in different ones. It's very cute. So, there we are. But now we all know if your system, whether it's a computer or whether it's your mind, if it's not working properly, it's, you know, it's, it's just funky. It's not working well. Then we all know what to do. The first thing you'll do is restart, reboot, reboot. So, how about your system, your information processing system, your mind, in, in, in close interaction with the body? Um what would you say? OCDD? I would say that's not working. If you had a computer that was spewing out OCDD all oh, the night, I think you would just hurl it with enormous ferocity out the window and hope never to see it again because that's just that's a computer that's gone AWOL. You know, absent without leave. it's just gone bonkers. But maybe if you could reboot it, maybe it would stop doing that, at least for a while, and you could get some actual work done on it. Well, that's what settling the mind, the body, speech, and mind, in the natural state are for. Before we go there, before we settle, before we just sit quietly, relaxation, stability, vigilance, settling respiration in its natural rhythm, settling the mind, relaxed, still, clear, before that, for most of us most of the time, it's OCDD, with all of the screw up of the, of the nervous system and the and the respiration as well, it's all an integrated package. And so when we just do that, just settle body, speech, and mind in natural state, that's already rebooting, because what should certainly calm down in that, in a gentle way, not hammering it down, as, we, as you all know by now, but just releasing after doing that for two or three minutes. You rebooted, and now the mind is relatively relaxed, still and clear. Not completely ensnared or captured by obsessive, compulsive, delusional thinking. In which case, you get a fresh start—a fresh start. So we do this at the beginning of every session, of course. I encourage you to do it, of course, beginning of all sessions. But also now that we're Now, definitely well into the latter half of our retreat here. Now and then thoughts are bound to come up about, you know, post-Puket, when you're, when you've left the mind center. (laughs) And you're out there and, oh, what everybody else likes to think is the real world. You might really consider already, as many times as you can, that is, when you're, once you're back, wherever you're going, Throughout the course of the day, season the day with rebooting subtle body speech and mind at the stoplight. Eyes open so you can see when it turns green.
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: But besides that, just, ah, oh, feels so good, you know, to do that 5, 10, 15 times a day. Just come back and reboot, reboot. Just, you know, ground. Get grounded. Let that OCDD evaporate. Come back. Ah, oh, this is what sanity. I remember sanity. It's nice. You know, it's better than the alternative. So there's one little rebooting. One little rebooting as we bring the awareness in. And what we're doing in that process, you all know it, is normally, prior to meditating, our minds are all over the place. I mean, they're out to the visual, the auditory, they're here, they're to the future, to the past. It's just, you know, like a like a mangy dog that's just running all over a garbage dump. It just... You know, just eat anything that comes up that kind of smells good, you know? That's the mind, just wandering all over the place. And so, when we settle body, speech, and mind in its natural state, we bring in that stray dog, that wild stallion, the elephant and rut of our minds, and bring it within the enclosure of the body. Right. So, we're basically rebooting all of the environment, saying, not right now, I'm just turning you off for a moment, I'll be back. But right now, I'm not giving you any any attention at all, not deliberately. And i am just come to the body and I'm going to be present in the body. That's going to be our practice for this afternoon, of course. Just coming into the infirmary. World you can do without me for a little while. I'm sure of it. I've got seven billion substitutes out there. They'll take care of it. And just come into your body, into your own skin, into your own field here. And be present there with your body, the somatic sensations, the flow of the breath, your mind, but all within this field. You've done a little retreat every time you settle body, speech, and mind. And you come into the infirmary. Full body awareness, mindfulness, of breathing. So that's a rebooting. It's kind of telling the whole world, I'm just turning you off for a little while, but I'll be back. But I think things will go better if I turn you off for a while, and then I'll come back. I'll come back with greater clarity and open heart. Good. So there's one little reboot. Now, let's consider, and that's how you start off. That's one way to start off on the path of shamatha. Imagine you come to the conclusion of the path of shamatha. In a much more robust way, your ordinary mind, together with all of your five physical senses, all withdraws, All withdraws. But now, not just into your body, not just into your mind, but into your substrate consciousness. So now, you've just temporarily turned off, rebooted, the entire, you experience of the entire environment and your body and your own mind, and you've slipped into the substrate consciousness with basically a blank, empty, three-dimensional screen, you reboot it. You say, you know the world, I'll get back to you. Mind, I'll get back to you. I'm sure you're there someplace. I'll, I'll, I'll find you when I need you. But right now, just resting in the substrate consciousness, you've just cleaned the slate, rebooted, restarted. And there you are, blissful, luminous, and non-conceptual, not doing anything, but ready to do all kinds of things. And if you've gotten there by achieving shamatha, when in that transition, and this is really a salient feature, it's not just how many hours you can meditate. It's not just whether your senses can implode. It's not just whether you experience bliss. People experience bliss sometimes during the first week. It's not that rare. And then it comes and it goes. No, to actually achieve shamatha entails really quite a radical shift in your energy system, in this information processing system. The prana system gets radically revamped, re-restarted. It's like a new, you get a new operating system. You know, to use the old computer analogy, a new operating system. The karmic energies, the flow of energy in the body, they get really radically tuned. And then, of course, there's a corollary, the mind getting radically tuned, so that not only during sessions, but following sessions, You are now... It's really like you've got a brand new operating system. You've got a massive upgrade. And now your whole perception of the environment is different. Tsongkava says, for example, once you've achieved shamatha, if you look at a pillar, like a pillar in a temple, you just look at it, you know, ordinary eyesight. He says, you'll feel as if you can see the individual atoms in the pillar. Can you? No, you can't. And he knows that. He doesn't say you can, but he says you feel as if just the resolution... The resolution of mental awareness is so high that it's just like, phew, your whole experience of the environment, your body, of course your mind, is just extraordinarily heightened. And that's your normal state now. The body feels dramatically different. There's a lightness, a buoyancy, and that's your steady state. That's your new platform, your new operating system. You know, body and mind, the mind slips very easily into samadhi. Your dreams tend to be your whole sleep state tends to be much much clearer, lucid dreaming much much easier, overall dreams much much clearer, Uh, overall virtuous states of mind arising very fluidly, very easily. Mental afflictions have a hard time getting in. If they do, they have a hard time holding on; they just fall back like those salmon trying to swim upstream. Uh, The mind extremely supple, and you can slip into samadhi whenever you like. So that's a major upgrade. Right. But you needed to shut everything down. You need to shut down the whole system. The coarse mind, your engagement with the environment, your engagement with your whole body. You had to shut the whole thing down. Down to, down to scratch. Down to, we turned it off. We didn't kill ourselves, but we just put everything down to zero. And of course, you've slipped into the substrate consciousness, which is where you wind up when you're dead. But happily, no damage to the body. And this is all actually very healthy. So there's a major reboot. Big system upgrade. Access to the forum realm now, and with that whole new system upgrade, now you can put in new software like Vipassana big time. You can run the Vipassana system on, on the lower system, but it just doesn't work very well. You know, it's not really a good match. You can do it, it helps. You can practice Dzogchen, you can practice Dumo and Po and all of those, you know, with your little low system 264K. You can. But it wasn't really designed for such a low grade system. The was designed for the system that's been upgraded to Shamatha. That's when it really works. Really, really works, right? So Shamatha is a major upgrade. But again it entails shutting everything down, down to not mount down to flat. Flat. Substrate consciousness, substrate. And then coming out, apply new applications. Vipassana, Bodhicitta. They say Bodhicitta, I mean, many of the great scholars, contemplatives of Tibet said, Bodhicitta will never become spontaneous, it will never become natural, fluid, just authentic, uncontrived, unless you, are, unless you have Samatha. Your system needs to be upgraded. You can't have a fundamentally dysfunctional mind and be a Bodhisattva. You should have a serviceable mind. That's what the Tibetan term is. Sem lesu ruma. Your mind is serviceable. That's what you get from shamatha. Until then, it's called nengelé, dysfunctional. Until shamatha, is dysfunctional. You're really sick. The Buddha said you're enslaved, you're in bonds, you're lost on a desert track, you're one really poor cookie, sad one sad puppy. That's what he was trying to say. <laughs> but you get it serviceable, and now that mind can be used for achieving bodhicitta and actually becoming a bodhisattva. That'd be cool. It's the proper system. Shamat is the proper system to insert Bodhicitta. That nice app, Vipassana, a really good app. Work them together, work them simultaneously. Two app, you know, two systems working together. Very nice. Works very well. Right. And then you keep on. So now with your new operating system and these new applications, Shamata is a bit Shamata and the Bodhicitta. Then proceed along that path. Why not, you know, continue? I mean, if you have something better to do, then you should do that, but if you can't think of anything better to do, then continue practicing bodhicitta, vipassana, become an Arya Bodhisattva, gain a direct, unmediated realization of emptiness. When that happens, there's a lot of evidence for this, when that happens, direct, non-conceptual, unmediated, non-dualistic realization of emptiness, the whole world vanishes. For you, the whole world vanishes. There are no appearances. There are no objects. Your experience, you are, your experience is totally immersed in shunyata, in emptiness. That's it. I mean, there's, this is a major reboot. The whole world vanishes. Your substrate vanishes. Substrate vanishes. Everything. All into great emptiness. Right? And that's because now, unlike in the achievement of shamatha, where your conceptual mind has gone very, very dormant, but it murmurs. It, like it murmurs in its sleep. It quietly murmur, 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 murmur. Pre articulated, but it's there. These subliminal precognitive tendrils of grasping, which are carried like the rats on the, the like the fleas on the rat, are carried on the tendrils of conceptualization. So even though it's called non conceptual, it's not completely non conceptual. It's coarse non conceptual. Dualistic mind that's gone that's shut up. But they're still quiet. Murmuring of conceptualization in the substrate consciousness, but when you gain that direct realization of emptiness, the conceptualization goes zero. It goes down to nothing, and because there is no conceptual designation, there is no world of this and that. that. There is no you. There is no not you. Completely inconceivable. Vast emptiness, and quite interestingly enough an exceptional quality of bliss and another radical shift of the body. Even though you're not aware of the body in that realization, another major shift takes place. Xinjiang, <shin> prashrapta Xinjiang, a suppleness now that is arising from the fusion of Vipassana, which is far beyond the suppleness, the lightness, the buoyancy, and the bliss that comes just from shamatha. So this is a major upgrade. Quite costly. One countless eons, something like that. A lot of merit points. But, again, major, major reboot, because now you've the whole universe for you has collapsed, has vanished, dissolved into emptiness. You emerge out, and now, of course, major, major trans- transformation, as you emerge out as an Arya Bodhisattva, because now your practice in between sessions is viewing all phenomena from that perspective as much as you can, dr- dragging into your post-meditative experience Dragging that, like dragging it, dragging something on the, on the screen with your mouse. Dragging your insight into emptiness, into all the appearances, because appearances still seem to be from their own side. But you absolutely know, beyond any shadow of a doubt, there is nothing that exists from its own side. So you know everything around you is deceptive. It's, it's a delusive appearance. It's a misleading appearance. They seem to be from their own side, but you know they aren't. It's an So you, with your wisdom, you override the delusive appearances. And so you, in between sessions, you maintain an ongoing flow just as seamlessly, as continuously as you can. The ongoing recognition, the ongoing awareness, all of this is dreamlike. And you should be an enormously competent lucid dreamer at this point, a dream yogi. So you know that in a dream, appearances seem to be arising from their own side, but you No, with total certainty, since you're really, really lucid. You can appear any way you like, but I know there's nothing there, from its own side, by its own nature, independent of conceptual designation. You know it. They still appear that way, but you know it's not. And of course, you can play with it. I mean, you can demonstrate to yourself that that's not the case by altering the conceptual designation and altering the reality. So, one of the nice stories, you can believe it or not believe it, I don't care. One of the nice stories from <laughs> from Chantikirti. I'm quite sure it was Chantikirti. Andrea, if I get it wrong, you tell me, okay? Because I know you study this. But as I recall, it was Chantikirti. Somebody came to him to debate. Great master of Madhyamaka view. Of and this person was very insistent, you know, but, no, it's not possible. Things have to exist on their own side. Otherwise, how could there be any causality? It would just be all make-believe. Oh, oh this madhyama this, you this makes no sense to think everything is just conceptually designated. Then it'd be make-believe. There would be no causality. And so, I think Chantikirti, after a while, he got kind of tired of debating. You know? And so he then, the story goes, he drew, made a drawing of a cow on the wall of his hut with udders with an udder and then he milked it. <laughs> That's a really good... I'd love to win a debate that way. You alter reality by just altering conceptual designation without needing to go up to the form realm and drag in these nimities, these archetypal forms and doing all that kind of gymnastics. You just... Any more than you need to do that in a lucid dream. You don't need to go to the form realm to change things in a lucid dream. You just change them. Right? You just shift them Shift your body, shift the environment. You don't need to go into any other other realm. It's just altering your conceptual designation. So, I think it must be an awful lot of fun to be an Arhant Buddha. I would really like to do it just for the sheer fun of it, you know, because you could have such a good time, maintaining that dreamlike awareness throughout the course of the day and altering things as you wish. And that's at that point you can just offer your, you know, offer your limbs. Oh, to anybody more than an arm? It's kind of skinny. I'm, the zambazana would be much tastier. You know, nice meat on it. This would kind of be, Looks like an arm of a rat. You know, skinny. But, you know, somebody wants it. You know. So, are you about to suffer? but major reboot before you can do that. And that's just the whole world collapses. And then consider going beyond that to a direct, unmediated, utterly, absolutely non-conceptual realization of Rigpa. Or let's call it Innate mind of clear light, His Holiness, Dalai Lama says they're the same. So, I rely on them. We're now bringing together two systems. Highest Yoga Tantra, which speaks of innate mind of clear light. Right? Dzogchen, of course, Rikma, His Holiness, being extremely well-versed in both, says these two are referring to the same thing. Methods for getting there, methods for realizing it, quite different. But when you get there, same. So, innate mind of clear light, when you have a direct non-real, non non Non-conceptual, non-dual, unmediated realization of the innate mind of clear light. Well, coarse mind, of course, has vanished. But all that takes is shamatha. Subtle mind has vanished. It was with the subtle mind that you that you were realizing emptiness, even in that as an arya bodhisattva. It's with the subtle mind, as an ordinary mahayana bodhisattva, arya bodhisattva, you're realizing emptiness with subtle mind, right? Subtle mind. Whereas, as a Vajrayana practitioner, a stage of completion, or as a Dzogchen pract- practitioner, full realization of the breakthrough, when you have this unmediated realization of Rikpa, you are realizing emptiness. It's the same emptiness, it's the same emptiness as is realized by the Arya Bodhisattva. There's not another emptiness. Right? You're realizing emptiness, but you're realizing emptiness from the perspective of Rikpa the innate mind of clear light. And of course, those two, the innate mind of clear light, rikpa; those two are synonymous, and emptiness, they are primordially non-dual. But now you're realizing it from the utmost depths. That's when you become a Vidyadara, a holder of knowledge, a holder of rikpa, a rikpa zimba, a Vidyadara. Hmm. And when you become Vidyadara, when you gain that direct realization of the innate mind of clear light, the whole world vanishes into this dimension of awareness that is completely free of activity. The stillness of the fourth time, the stillness of the time beyond past, past, present, and future. The stillness of the universe when there's no observer participant getting in there and tinkering with it and conceptually designating. A stillness beyond any possibility of motion. That's why it's said, that rikpa is beyond motion and stillness, as it's beyond one and many, beyond coming and going. Right. And that's because these conceptual polarities are utterly transcended. So, the fourth time. Well, in that state, all appearances vanish. There is just the non-dual realization of dhammata, ultimate reality, also known as Dhamadatu. Absolute space of phenomena, also known as emptiness, realized non-dually by Rigpa or the innate mind of clear light. That's a major reboot. You come out of that and you're vidyadada. And as the Arya Bodhisattva, Arya, Arya Bodhisattva coming out of the direct realization of emptiness sees all phenomena arising as emptiness is form, form is emptiness, all these forms themselves are empty of inherent nature, they are light dreams. They are like dreams, and you sustain that as you're engaging in the bodhisattva way of life, but seem to, how do you say, imbue every activity, every experience with that dream-like experience of all phenomena being empty, of being nothing other than emptiness, as being displays of emptiness, right? As a vidyadhara, you go beyond that if one can imagine, and one really can't, but one can still talk a little bit. You come out of that direct realization of the innate mind of clear light. You come out of that realization. And now, without visualizing anything, you simply perceive all appearances as the creative displays, expressions of your own pristine awareness. Now you're lucid. Now you don't say, this is like a dream. Now you are awake, and you see, this is a dream. And all appearances are appearances of your own awareness. And there's nothing solipsistic about that. Because your own awareness is not local. But this now, from this waking perspective of the of Vidya all appearances, all, all appearances of the universe, a hundred billion galaxies, they're all your own appearances. Of course, not the appearances of your coarse mind, not the appearances of your substrate consciousness. They are appearances of Rigpa, pristine awareness and you sustain that, you sustain that at all times, day and night, as continuously as you can. That ongoing flow of resting and rikpa, seeing all phenomena, mental phenomena, sensory phenomena, everything that arises. Ongoing flow of one taste, displays of your own rikpa. So there are these more advanced practices, I will not speak of content, but these practices of the direct crossing over to bring forth the full capacity, manifest the full capacity of rikpa, which you've realized in its absolute stillness. And now you come to realize in its full effulgence, its displays. When you come to the end of that sequence of practices and realizations, in the direct crossing over, you come to the culmination of it. The final vision, the final, the final episode. And it's called Chinyi Zepe. Chunyi The vision of the extinction of all phenomena into Dhammata, into ultimate reality. The extinction of all appearances of the whole universe into Dhammata, into ultimate reality. Of course, non-dual from Rick. But now, this time, it's irreversible, it's... forever. What's being dissolved, evaporated, extinguished, are all impure appearances, all appearances that arise by the force of karma. All appearances that are in any way conditioned by obscurations of klesha, or of nye avarana, the more subtle level, or dimension of obscurations, all appearances, of impure mind, tainted with obscurations. All are extinguished, and irreversibly extinguished. So it doesn't mean then from that point, now that you have awakened completely, it doesn't mean that there are no appearances, you kind of hang out in the void forever, and where did everybody go? And I thought I was supposed to be a Buddha and help people, but I can't see them.
1: <laughs>
0: <laughs> all impure appearances from your perspective have all vanished. You are no longer a sentient being. You've awakened to your true nature. So all appearances are pure appearances. Pure appearances. The pure, unmitigated, displays of ripa. But in a way that I think probably is literally inconceivable, that is, not incapable of being imagined by a sentient being, you are non-dually aware of all the appearances arising to sentient beings from their side, how they see things. You're not oblivious to that. And so this arouses all-pervasive compassion. So now that was the final system upgrade. To one who is awake, and now your operating system is fully operative, and you keep it running for as long as space remains, for as long as sentient beings remain. Your system runs until all suffering has been dispelled, all beings have been liberated. And it's effortless, so don't worry about it. It takes a long time. You won't get tired out. So, there's my big computer analogy for the day. Just one system upgrade after another. But by the time you're a Buddha, I mean, the Buddhist view, of course, is that there is a culmination. There is a final unveiling. The, the removal of even the finest, tiniest, most subtle obscurations. And then that's it. It's infinite. It's open. There is no way beyond that, because there's nothing beyond that. It is infinite, open, primordial. And you now know who you are. And that's the fundamental distinction between a sentient being and a Buddha. Sentient beings don't know who they are, and Buddhas do. So there's the long path, there's the big picture. And the Dzogchen view, I must say, I believe it. But then we... After letting the mind become very expansive, then we come back and we recognize, oh, my mind's still suck my mind's still subject to OCDD, <laughs> <laughs> and I still got that first elephant-like little laptop that has a 64K and a 64K and can't run two systems at the same time. Uh, so this means it would be a good idea to settle the body, speech, and mind in the natural state, and spend some time in the infirmary. <laughs> <laughs> Why not? So, all the Buddhas in the room. It's time to take a nap. <laughs> Pretend as if you're a sentient being. I love those, those many phrases in the Songs of Experience where the Dzudjom Ningma and the others just say "ha ha," like they can, they're just. They can hardly even contain their laughter.
1: So wonderful.
0: I wish I could laugh with them, but they're kind of laughing at me. (laughs) Oh yeah. So settle your body in its natural state, relaxed, still, and vigilant. with utter abandon, with utter surrender. Release all control and all preference over the breath. Releasing each out-breath as if it were your last, giving it all away, fearlessly. Until the next breath is given without being taken. And whether it is short or long, deep or shallow, Accept what's given with contentment, knowing that you're receiving what you need, just what the body needs, this time, in this cycle of the respiration. The world needs us, but not all the time. So as you settle your mind in its natural state, just for this while, release all your concerns about the future and the past. Allow yourself the luxury and the freedom to come to rest in stillness, in the present moment. And like a light filling a room, let the light of your awareness illuminate the space of your body. The tactile sensations arising throughout, from the earth element on up. And with each out-breath, like a happy sigh of relief. Happily, gladly. Let go of any conceptualization that comes up. They're not needed right now, it's just noise. Release it with every outbreath. And return to the quietness, the stillness, the serenity of the space of your body. And the sensations correlated with the in and outflow of the breath. noting the duration of each in-breath, each out-breath, whether it is long or short. And let's continue practicing now in silence. Oh, I just two questions. One looks short, one looks very long. Why is it said that when we see a negative quality in someone else like anger, we're reflecting our own like a mirror. When the Buddha got rid of all his defilements, couldn't he see it he, he couldn't he see any more anger, envy, etc in other people? Yeah, he could. He could see theirs. Um I have discussed that in the past, so I'll refer to it now a little bit more briefly, but as unenlightened people who don't have direct clairvoyance, who do not have the ability to, to literally observe other people's mental processes, then what we observe is other people's behavior, their facial expressions, body, and so forth, and then we draw like artists we draw from our we draw from our own palette we paint from our own palette of mental states emotions mental afflictions virtues and so forth with which we are familiar and then we paint we paint others we fill in like we paint the insides of their minds from the palette of our own minds and in that way we make sense of other people's behavior right But, of course, insofar as the other person is radically, or significantly, unlike ourselves, um, we're always painting ourselves here, but the how we envision, how we conceive, literally, how we conceive of other people, based upon our own experience, may be really off-base. I remember speaking with a woman some time ago, very loving person, very affectionate person, and she said when she would express her affection to other people, and, and simply that, affection, I mean, warmth, kindness, uh, especially men, would take it as she was sexually interested in them That's what they were familiar with. If a woman smiles at you and blah, 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 uh then you go blah, blah, blah. blah. <laughs> Ready to tango. And so she found she had to be much more reserved about that, especially with men, because they would they would interpret it in a way that they're familiar with, you know? So it's kind of innocent in a way, but it means that they got the wrong impression time and time again. So, and she didn't want to deceive people, so it had to be a bit more reserved. And so there's just one case. Uh, if to take a, a, perhaps a deeper one, uh, those of us who have had a lot of engagement with lamas over the years or decades know that on occasion... They may display very wrathful behavior, quite ferocious. Well, we know what it's like to be angry. I think all of us have had some experience of that. And so when we see a Lama displaying a strong voice, face, facial expression, we may think, oh, Lama has big mental afflictions, just <laughs> like me. I guess there's no hope. Because this Lama has been in retreat for so long. This lama's great Chukur, Rinpoche, this, that. Oh, too bad. Bad Lama. Let's find a good Lama who fulfills my expectations. Who is always walking around with a happy little smile. No matter what happens. That is our cartoon of saintliness in the West. And it just shows how spiritually immature modern society is. Really, I mean childish, to think that if you have deep realization that your bandwidth of behavior is now locked into sweet and sugary, always sweet, always peaceful, as if that's going to be the most skillful response to any situation. It's quite foolish, quite naive. So to run really quickly, I know I'm life on a tangent here, but maybe a meaningful tangent, there are these four classic modes of enlightened manifestation, enlightened activity. All coming from the same motivation and may be imbued with the same wisdom, but these displays are very, very different. So enlightened activity, of calming, of soothing, of pacifying. Color code is white, and it's just what we in the modern West expect of our saints. We expect them to be peaceful and loving and healing and all that kind of thing. It's very nice, that often is the case. That's kind of a baseline. It's kind of a baseline, default mode, right? And often, if you just come to a, some wonderful lama, that's very likely the baseline. Is just very peaceful, very right? calm, serene. I've met many yogis. That's the baseline, but they're not stuck there because that's not always in every situation the most effective way to serve the needs of others. So there is then something a bit more, a bit juice, bit more manifestation, a bit how do you say, more dynamic. Gyebele the activity of expansion, where you're going out of your way, you're extending yourself to enrich the lives of others with material goods, with knowledge, with skills, with information, with whatever. But you're recognizing just being peaceful and serene and healing is not all of what's needed sometimes to enrich the lives of others. So the color code for that is yellow or gold. And sometimes that's really what the doctor ordered. Sometimes, Wangele, the activity, empowering activity, forceful activity, strong activity, where a display of strength is needed. Firmness, but strength, power. Not malevolent, not destructive, but sheer power is needed more than simply enrichment, but power. I won't give examples. I think you can find your own. Color-coded red. So sometimes that, and that's not what we expect of saints. Saints are supposed to be meek and mild and very humble and, oh, whatever you like, I'm just a saint, you know. (laughs) Sometimes they'll overwhelm you, they'll dominate you, they'll overpower you. If that's what's the most appropriate. And then of course, takbirle, activity of ferocity, of wrathfulness. So, I've been the recipient of that, not very often, frequently. Maybe because the lamas didn't figure I could take it. But once in a while, and every time it happened, really every time it happened, I, I had a sense. That's what the doctor ordered. That's what the doctor ordered. Really ferocious. Made me feel bad. It's not happy to be feeling ferocity. doesn't give you a warm and tingly feeling. It gets you more of a feeling of being burnt to a crisp. <laughs> But if you have the confidence, then you go beyond your own displays of anger, which are generally coming out of, if you're like me, out of self-centeredness, out of the mind going into a refractory period, being fundamentally delusional, and then like a, like a pot is boiling and then just boils over. Ah, uh, well, maybe this wasn't the same. Maybe this was compassion boiling over. It's quite hot, but serving a good use. So, so when we see mental addictions in others, whether it's trying to make sense of the wrath of some highly realized Lama, even the Buddha sometimes, sometimes his speech, when, when Devadatta, when Devadatta, his cousin who tried to kill him, uh, told the Buddha maybe it was time for him to step down, and Devadatta said, I'll, you know, I'll take your place, I'll be the new head of the Sangha, Buddha's words were not gentle. He let him know in no uncertain terms. This is utterly inappropriate. You don't ask a Buddha to retire. <laughs> Shouldn't have needed to be said, but Devadatta was a bit slow in the uptake. But that's because he is deluded by envy. But the said, if you go back, I won't quote him, but if you go back, the Buddha was very tough on him. The speech was very tough. So, we tend to make sense, I mentioned this earlier, I think it's a pretty deep truth, it's not my truth, that we tend to make sense of the world in ways that are familiar to us. And so if we witness somebody displaying compassion of a kind that we cannot imagine, then we will imagine imagine it, we'll interpret it in a way that we can imagine, that makes sense in terms of our own experience, and that means probably a massive downgrade. What's the catch? What's the angle? What's the gimmick? Something that makes sense to me, from my perspective. So the overall view here, and I'll sum up on this one, is the higher can perceive the lower, and the lower can't perceive the higher. That's a really good rule of thumb. The arya buddhisattva can make perfectly good sense of the anger of an ordinary sentient being, selfishness. Been there and done that. There was nobody who was going to primordially an arya buddhisattva Just was got lucky, you know. They've already been through. They've already been through being an ordinary sentient being, and they've they've know all the stages of evolution between that. So all of that is familiar ground. They can make sense of the coarsest anger, the silliest arrogance, and so forth and so on. It's in their data banks, they can make sense of it. But a ordinary being cannot make sense, cannot validly interpret the behavior, let alone imagine the mind state of an Arya Bodhisattva. It's outside your data bank, you can't make any sense of it. So when you perceive it, you'll perceive it you probably won't just see a black hole there like where the Bodhisattva is, you can't see anything at all. You'll probably see something, but it will be something that makes sense to you, like a really sweet old guy, something like that. But what was his name? Tehor Oh did it. Dehor I think I don't even think he finished his Tehor I don't think he finished his geshe. I think he took off just before the Geshi, if I remember correctly. I don't remember. But there was one old geshe there about midnight mid twentieth century. And I think it came time for his exams. He said, Oh heck with exams, I don't need the title. He just took off and went up in the mountains, and lived like Nalarepa. And then, once in a while, when a person like his home, the Dalai Lama, was teaching, he'd come down, and he'd just come down in these scruffy, old robes, like some, you know, really low-level, scruffy monk, who'd never studied even well enough, that people wanted to give him good robes. He'd just kind of slip in, kind of dark and And grungy-looking. Tremendous realization. But outside, you have anything to add? You, you have an interesting expression. Andre, you remember? La. Deo Kyopun Did it? Did it? Look really ordinary. I mean, less than ordinary. Or I heard just recently, I think it was in the film, it was in the film, um, Brilliant Moon, and I'm This extraordinary master. And some, again, scruffy-looking muck came in, and they... And, you know, really low level. I mean, really just kind of a nobody. But he's a great master. He. There's time he lets you He'll have interview with anybody. So when everybody else had finished, then his attendant said, OK, you guys get, OK, Rinpoche has some time. Go ahead and you can see him. And expecting a little five-minute pat on the head, you know, like that. you know, Blessing, head blessing. Instead, the interview went on and on and on and on. The attendants were what? What's this? Why is Rinpoche giving so much time to this guy? It's nobody. So they peeked in. It turned out this monk had some exceptional oral transmission. He, he was, he was holding some oral transmission, some very sacred teaching that Dingo Gensenabuchi didn't have. So Dingo Gensenabuchi said, oh please, pass it. Transmit to me this transmission. So Dingo and is then received him as the monk was giving transmission. Well, one of my favorite stories, Milarepa, Milarepa, after he was enlightened, he looked apparently really bad.
1: <laughs> really
0: scruffy. And he was, he was probably standing, you know, sitting near a path, just kind of enjoying the sunshine. Just sitting there, minding his own business. But he think really looked pretty ugly. Scrawny. Not well fit. And a couple of them, lovely young ladies walked by the path. And they took one look at him. And one commented to the other, Oh, I hope we don't become like him. And Melarepa, of course, heard them don't worry, ladies. You won't.
1: <laughs>
0: no worries on that account. Oh yeah. So, in that way. So, but since the Buddha has experienced what it's been what it's like to be all kinds of sentient beings, the Buddha has no underst- no problem understanding us. More difficult for us to understand the Buddha. Oh, Naso, in your introduction to genuine happiness, you refer to two types of. Looks like conquest. This is happiness gained not through the outer conquest of nature or the acquisition of fame and wealth, but through the conquest of our inner obscurations and the realization of natural resources inherent in our hearts and minds. Boy, that guy really knows what he's talking about. That really sounded good to me. So, and you have outlined in in your recent talks the wonderfully complementary nature of of the findings on emptiness between scientific and Buddhist definitions. Okay, thank you. I wonder, however, whether there is an equally serious disjunct between the two traditions, I presume science and Buddhism, insofar as the former may be driven by Judeo Christian and Yahme uh, Judeo Christian religion and Yahweh's commandment to his creation, man, ye shall have dominion over the earth. Well that certainly does this came up explicitly. It's certainly there's there's discourse. Certainly these are not, oh, it's all one and we just kinda of put a big sugar coating on everything. Oh, that's absolutely true. And I mentioned earlier the um one of the great architects of modern modern science, natural philosophy, and that was Francis Bacon, writing in the 17th century, late 16th, early 17th century, I believe. But one brilliant man. He was, as I recall, he had legal training. He wasn't a great scientific innovator like a Galileo or a Kepler, but really was in the mood. He he was one of the large framework makers, and very influential. And, and, like everybody else, all the pioneers of the scientific revolution, he was a devout Christian. And that meant back then, believing the Old Testament literally. Almost all of it, anyway. And he, and he really drew from that theme that a major reason why God would be pleased, because they had to have a theological justification. This is from Laura, by the way. They, these great pioneers, they had to have a theological justification. Why was it worthwhile to engage in scientific research? As more than a hobby, you know, something after, after work or something. Why would one devote a life to that? And, I mean, these were very deep thinkers, and they needed a theological justification for doing that. And Francis Bacon drew exactly on that theme. He said, this is God's commandment. We are here to gain dominion over the earth, be fruitful and multiply, and by gaining knowledge of the natural world, we'll gain mastery over it. And he's the one that said, put nature on the rack and do with her what you will. And it was feminine. It to sound, frankly, to be crude, it sounds like a gang rape. And that's not a bad description of a lot of what not scientists have done, but Eurocentric civilization has done. How many species we wiped out, you know, you don't need any commentary from me. So there's no question. And that notion, you know, conquest over nature, dominion, all of it, it just, it just, it, it, it just doesn't make any sense whatsoever at any level in Buddhism. So certainly there's difference there. What I find remarkable then, is that a tradition that is utterly rooted. A lot of, a lot of scientists, philosophers of science, like to ignore the past in this regard. Oh, we've outgrown that. Oh, the, the conditioning from the Judeo-Christian tradition is still incredibly deep. Even the notion of laws of nature, where did that come from? God. People create laws. The great, the great people, the great person, God created laws of nature. That's why we speak of laws. And physicists don't mind speaking about laws of nature. So that percolates all over the place, even in 21st century science. So what I find interesting is here's this profoundly uh, monotheistic tradition. God the creator, the governor, the ruler, the punisher, the rewarder, um, lying at the very root of all of modern science. It's there. And that's where our metaphysical realism comes from. God created the whole thing in the first five days, all but us. The first five days, everything else was done. And it's absolutely out there, real and objective, seen perfectly from God's perspective. On the sixth day created us, we're an afterthought, a very nice, important afterthought. But nevertheless, the whole place is finished before we come along. And so what are we to do? We are to see what God created before we ever came along. It's already a fait accompli. And the scientists' vision, their aspiration was to see it from God's own perspective. Which is absolute objectivity. Gee, do we hear of any ideal of objectivity in modern science? Where might that come from? You know. So yeah, but what I find interesting here is even though the roots are so profoundly different than Buddhism, boy, is that different from the Four Noble Truths as a starting point. Nevertheless, through four hundred years of trajectory of that, we come up with quantum cosmology that sounds so remarkable in important respects. To Zhou Chen, I find that quite remarkable. We can say also. Early Indian religion, Indic religion, is profoundly, like early Greek religion, is profoundly polytheistic. There's no way around it. I mean, it started with a whole bunch of gods. Indra, Shiva, and the list goes on. Female De- devis and devas. It's a pantheon. Everybody knows that. As with the early Greeks. So there you are. It's, it's radical polytheism. You know? Going back to the Vedas. And then let, let that run for a number of centuries. Until you come to the Veda Anta the culmination of the Vedas, or Vedanta, Advaita Vedanta, non-dualistic Vedanta. And then see if you can see any parallels between that and Dzogchen. So one starting out polytheistic, one starting out radically monotheistic, Buddhism starting out non-theistic but complex, you know, uh, not easily bracketed in terms of our familiar Western categories. And then perhaps some deep conversions, but yeah, the differences are not to be overlooked. Precisely the conquest of nature I refer to in the introduction. So in this sense, while the findings may be similar, the trajectories and the value systems of the two d- 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 traditions do appear to be radically different. I couldn't agree more. And of course, the scientists, the, that is, they were called natural philosophers back then. Um, if you asked, if you were to ask them, I'll be very hypothetical here. If you were asked to ask them, Francis Bacon, Copernicus, Galileo, Kepler, Tycho Brahe, and so forth, if you'd ask them, where do you find fulfillment? Where do you find meaning? Where do you find, if you wanted to use a Greek term, eudaimonia? Why are you asking such a silly question? God, the Bible, our religion, that's what it's all for. And it comes to its culmination in the afterlife. As Augustine said, the contemplative life can be begun in this life, but it comes to its fulfillment only in the afterlife. Right? And eudaimonia runs through St. Augustine's writings, runs through the writings of many Christian theologians and contemplatives. So if you're looking for eudaimonia, you don't have to look anywhere else other than your own tradition. That's what it's all about. But in the meanwhile, in the 14th century, what, one-third, one-half of the European population was wiped out by the bubonic plague? And then famine, and then war, and then just you know, one catastrophe after another. Diseases, and so forth. Natural calamities, volcanoes, earthquakes, and so forth and so on. And nature was considered to be a terrifying place. Anything that wasn't cultivated, terrifying. And there it was, and this is God's creation, and these are acts of God. But it's terrifying. And so, on the one hand, there was a very profound theological impetus for the rise of modern science. To know the mind of the Creator by way of the creation, and to seek to know the mind of the Creator from God's own perspective, a purely objective perspective. So there was a very deep theological motivation behind it. Uh, externalized contemplative inquiry is what I've called it. You know. So instead of samadhi, you start with a telescope. On the one hand, on the other hand, we go back to Francis Bacon and said, "Look, power, uh, knowledge is power. Give us more knowledge about nature, and we can control it, and and not have to be so terrified, not to be so terrified all the time. It's frightening. And so the more the more knowledge we have, the more power to subdue, to gain dominion." And so, look to natural philosophy, which is a human creation, unlike the Bible, which is complete divine creation, in their view. Go to natural philosophy. Natural means human beings can do it. We're using our intelligence, our abilities of observation, our God-given abilities of reason, of observation. We'll be using God's own language, mathematics. And by so doing, we can carve out some hedonic safety and some hedonic well-being. So pragmatically speaking, they really looked to science to provide them with hedonic well-being. And the fact that it didn't provide meaning to life, they said, why on earth would you ask physics to provide you with a meaningful life? That is just stupid. And chemistry and biology and everything else. Why are you looking there? We never designed it to do that. That's what you got the Bible for, silly. Where this is for hedonic well-being. And so it was quite, quite neat. The natural philosophy was for hedonic well-being, and to gain insight, that gives you a more and more objective view of what's really going on, uh, whereas in buddhadharma of course, the whole spirit of the inquiry is primarily eudaimonic and the hedonic is secondary all the way through. So this tension can be seen in a way in which mindfulness is being employed by some, of course, not all modern psychologists and researchers, as a potential instrument of conquest in the first, not the second, Buddhist sense of the term. Absolutely. I, I, I Frankly, I don't know, Then I'm expressing my ignorance, not knowledge, uh, I don't know of a single scientific study of meditation that med- measures anything other than the hedonic benefits of meditation. And and most of them are starting out with John Kabat-Zinn's wonderful work. I say that, you know, not with reverence, but with respect. And that is for stress reduction. That's how... Meditation got the got the door open, the crack in the door open to get into a major university, University of Massachusetts, Stress Reduction Clinic. And then over time, it took a lot of pioneering work by John and many scientific colleagues that he's collaborated with to get it so that scientists wouldn't just turn their noses up in disgust and contempt and say, this is mumbo-jumbo, what are you messing around with meditation for? This is Eastern bullshit. You know? And that was the response for like, more than a century don't even look at it. This is for for stupid people, for air, airheads. So John, being one of the pioneers there, John Cavinson, should look, but it's very helpful for reducing stress. And if you have stress, that aggravates every known disease from a common cold to cancer. It makes everything worse if you have unacceptable levels of stress. Uh, and so if meditation can help that, then implicitly that should be able to help alleviate the symptoms of every disease. That should be pretty significant. And the scientists, being sensible people, said, you know, you're right. So now there are a couple of hundred, two hundred, who knows how many studies of this very simple form of mindfulness, bear attention, uh, for relieving stress and then looking at very specific illnesses, from skin diseases to heart problems, all kinds of stuff, let alone and then depression and so forth and so on. So that was the way that very simple form of meditation, almost pre-meditation has made its way into a realm where it's regarded as having some credibility. But the evaluations are, as far as I can tell, 100% hedonic. In other words, it's being appropriated. And I just reviewed a... Uh, made some edits in a paper for which I'm one of the co-authors. One of the many papers, probably be 20 by the time we're finished, coming out of the Shamata Project. And uh, it was looking at the effects on cortisol. Cortisol levels. It's sort very of valuable. Entirely hedonic. And every other study in the Shamatha Project, and it was my, it was my brainchild, and then I didn't do the work, I just taught the meditation, but the scientists did all this research. Every single measure is hedonic. You know? And so, one point that was very validly made by the author of this paper, very, very bright, I think she's postdoc by now, uh, was that mindfulness, which has now been so appropriated by modern psychologists, neuroscientists, scientific community, psychiatrists, and so forth, has been radically decontextualized. And I said, well, and I, and I said, well, okay, well, let's make that a bit clearer. I said, it has been dissociated from its origins. I said, well, it's not just that. It's not just that. It's been taken entirely out of its ethical context. Almost entirely. And out of its theoretical framework. I just gave one. These multiple systems upgrade. That was big time framework. For settling, from settling body, speech, and mind in its natural state up to the culmination of Zhou Chen. That's called framework. That's context. In 35 minutes I gave big time context. Well, I find that enormously useful. Extremely useful. Well, all of that's taken away. But the deal is it's not just that the modern kind of teaching of mindfulness and other practices in a very secular setting, it's not just that it's taken out of the Buddhist context. Buddhist worldview, Buddhist values, Buddhist ethics, which it is almost entirely. But you can't simply decontextualize something. That's not possible. Whenever you take something out of a context, in the same breath, you put it into another context. And the context tends to be one of complete materialism and the meaning of life is a pursuit of hedonic pleasure. In other words, the whole process has been sabotaged. So there's a somewhat uncharitable view of scientific study of meditation, appropriating it and emasculating it at the same time. And I mean emasculation, that is it can't give rise to any little eudaimonic babies. Oh, So this tension. So yeah, there it is. Yeah. So this conquest in the first, namely as meditation, now presented as a way of making people more functional and productive. So meditation in the business, in the business community. So they'd be more creative more productive, have better emotional intelligence, get along, and so they can make more money. Because that's what it's really all about. Now, colleagues of mine, including one in this room right now, do not have a simple-minded, hedonic approach to all of this. And recognize, and I've spoken to business, uh, two groups of business people when I was in Europe just recently. And I'm very happy with where I started. I hope my words were meaningful, but I know that motivation was meaningful. And I spoke to them and I said, look, I'm going to address you now, not primarily as business people. And I spoke with quite a number of business leaders. But I'm not addressing you primarily as business people. I'm not a business person. So if I addressed you primarily as business people, and I'm really not a business person at all, then I would be starting out speaking from a point of alienation. I I will start by focusing on how you're not like me. Which means I'm going to have a hard time understanding you, because I'm not a business person, never even got close, and I don't want to be. But for you people who are so different to me, I will share my wisdom with you. Are you ready? You know, Well, i got nothing to offer, not to them as businessmen. What do I know? Bring in a business person who's meditated. I'm not a business person. They said, you know, I know you're business people. I'm not a business person. I will address you as human beings first, who happen to be, for the time being, business people, but that can always change.
1: <laughs> right?
0: And then I felt very relaxed, because I'm a human being. I'm a full card-carrying member hundred percent well at least I'm not quite sure hundred percent but at least I'm a party member and then I felt very comfortable so speaking to business people as human beings athletes as human beings teachers as human beings then they want happiness and if and I found time and again right from the very beginning I'll say there's a distinction there's genuine happiness and they seeonic and people get it they get it they don't have to become Buddhist. They don't have to jump out of their wagon. And I'll say for that, ethics is important. It's crucial, indispensable. And they get it. And they want, end some, and want to be more ethical business people. And they want to find greater eudaimonic well-being in the midst of the business. And start caring more about their employees and not only what they can get from their employees. So I think we're right now at a cusp. This is my hope and also a little bit expectation based upon a little bit of reality that there are many people sharing this view. Meditation in mental health, meditation in business, athletics, education, and so forth. And now the time is really ripe to say, you know, hedonic well-being is very important. When lamas get sick, they take medicine. It's good, I'm glad they do. It's hedonic. But in all these fields, education, athletics, business, mental health, it's now not too soon to raise the distinction of genuine happiness. People get it. And then we can say, this is what meditation is fundamentally about, and it's very nice that his hedonic well-being is also, but the core of it is really to find genuine happiness. So I think we're really right there. I'm very glad to be working with people who share that vision. So This issue might also go some way to explaining the difficulties between physicists and contemplatives that I've alluded to. Yeah, I think you're right, and again, when I engage with physicists, um, I engage with primarily as human beings, because I can't—I I don't call myself a physicist. I have two and year, two and a half years of pretty in, intense study. Doesn't make you a physicist. Makes you a person who's a bit familiar with the, with the field. So, yeah. But once again, if we address that level, you may be a physicist now, but you might not be later. You're a human being, I'm a business person, an athlete. Athlete now, don't count on that for a long time. Uh, then we've come back to common ground again. Common ground. And that we all really are looking for something, greater satisfaction, greater fulfillment. And a growing number of people, especially those who have succeeded to some meaningful extent in the hedonic, and seeing what its limits are, are then recognizing uh, hedonic well-being very important. And now, what else is there? And ready to listen. So there we are. Oh yeah. So enjoy your your contemplative Sabbath, your quiet day. And I'll see you around. <laughs>